Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. We're broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus on the unceded ancestral and traditional Musqueam territory in Vancouver. I'm your host, Sarah Unju, and I couldn't be happier to be talking to you today. I missed you. Not having weekly shows feels so weird because on the weeks that we don't have the show, it feels like we're on a hiatus, but then we do have the show the next week and I'm like, oh my god, no, we're back. <laughs> but anyways, I hope uh, you've been enjoying our reruns and if you're not listening to this live, I hope you've been enjoying the episodes no matter what because you can listen to them anytime you want on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or CITR.ca. Anyways, <laughs> Um, it's an exciting day today. We have a lot planned for you today. We're gonna start with some shout outs and then we have uh, two interviews and a review, not specifically in that order. Um, so let's get into our shout outs, shall we? So, Vancouver Opera, they have been um, putting on digital performances. We've covered La Voix Humaine and Amal and the Night Visitors. Um, we have not covered the last two, and the last one actually premiered very recently, May 1st, and it's available to watch until the end of the season as the other performances. If you have a season's pass, if you have a subscription to Vancouver Opera, you can watch all of them until the end of the season. So, Carmen, Up Close and Personal, that is the title of the the newest uh, presentation by Vancouver Opera. It is a fresh, original, and never-before-seen take on Carmen. It is developed by stage, stage director Brenna Corner and conductor Les Dalla. <laughs> I hope I pronounced that right. Probably not. Anyways, um, so Carmen, up close and personal, focuses on the four principal characters with a few twists and turns along the way. You can get more information um, or tickets and or tickets at vancouveropera.ca and uh, when it comes to tickets you can get a single ticket a combo ticket or a season's pass as i said in the beginning if you get if you get a season's pass you get access to all of the shows that they put on you get access to all of the shows that they have put on this seasons and you can watch all of them anytime you want you don't have to watch them live you know you can just Click play whenever you want. Okay, go moving on. Boca del Lupo. Boca del Lupo has partnered with six national theater companies to bring four more boxes of plays to perform at home. These boxes feature 16, 16 plays by 16 writers from 
across the country. They are meant to be read out loud with your chosen bubble around around the dinner table, a picnic blanket if you're out in the park, or a campfire if um, you have campfires, which is amazing. I'm jealous of you. (laughs) Place to perform, offer uh, theater lovers a creative way to connect with each other while you know, they're waiting for theaters to open again. So if we can't get theater in person, we create theater in person. (laughs) Make sure with your bubble people, though. (laughs) So you can get the set online at Boca del Lupo Theater Square site, which is so Boca, B-O-C-A. So is this a dash? Not a forward not a four yeah i guess it's yeah it's a dash okay del which is d-e-l dash lupo uh, l-u-p-o dash theater um e-r-e not e-r dot square dot site or i'm sure if you just google boca de lupo um place to perform at home you will find it uh, the plays include super by tara began where does that blue come from that robin that Robin's Egg Blue by Karen Hines, Negotiations by Hiro Kanagawa, and Papadum by Giovanni Sai. Okay, I'm <laughs> pushing through. We have our shoutouts. We have our shoutout for VIDF up next. If you're wondering why I'm laughing, it's because I almost just died, but I cut it out because I don't need you to hear that. <laughs> Anyways. VIDF, if you don't know, is the Vancouver International Dance Festival, and VIDF is currently presenting dance shows digitally. They have dance shows online. It's amazing. Um, so the upcoming two shows include Tiger Princess that da- Tiger Princess Dance Projects in Search of Holy Chapsue and Weave Part One. I'm sorry, my notes are pretty far away and it's taking me a little more effort than I would like to to read them. Anyways, um, this will be live streaming May 2021st at 7pm and May 22nd at 4pm, so May 20 to 22nd. And we have Camps Wanted, which will be live streaming May 27th and 28th at 7pm and May 29th at 4pm, so 27th to 29th. You can read the full program and get tickets at bidf.ca. And also, I would like to mention that they are having live streams until June 19th. So these two aren't the only ones. They are the closest ones, hence me mentioning them. Um, so keep an eye out if these aren't interesting for you. Keep an eye out for the upcoming presentations. They are having live streams until June 19th. Also, I would like to say VIDF, they have, they do a really good job with the live streams. Um, I did reviews on, I think, three performances this fall and they were amazing. Um, so make sure you check it out. Also, donate if you can. VIDF, usually their tickets are donate, um, like by donation, donate what you can. So you could technically watch it for zero dollars, but like, keep the arts alive, baby, donate. <laughs> even, even five dollars. It's, that helps so much. Anyways, on to our last shout out. I know, so many shout outs, so many information to keep in mind. But 
I would like to let you know that all of this information will also be in our description for our podcast. So here's a, that's another reason for you to check them out. Anyways, <laughs> also keep an eye out on our social media too. We post them on social media. Anyways, okay. Last, last shout out is for Isolation Suite. So do you remember my interview with Tim Carlson about Isolation Suite? If you do, amazing. I love you. Thank you for listening. Um, if you don't, that's okay. You can always go back and listen to it. And I would recommend listening to it because why wouldn't you? <laughs> it's a great, great um, interview because Tim mentions how he started writing Isolation Suite and how he was intrigued by the idea of having social isolation before the pandemic even started like a couple years ago and now <laughs> it's being released oh <laughs> like how <laughs> i don't know if this is irony or just a funny joke by the by the universe but you know <laughs> it's happening so make sure you check it out um new episodes are being launched at Bandcamp. You can listen to the ones that have been launched at Bandcamp. Uh, again, it's Isolation Suite. And they're also releasing videos. So I believe both YouTube and Vimeo, the videos are available. So check them out. Um, Tim told me that so far they've had a great response to it. So keep it going. Keep it going, fam. Okay. <laughs> So, now that the shoutouts are over. Up next, we have Dion's review of Shelter. And then we're gonna go into a quick ad and PSA break. And then we have Phoebe's interview for Food for the Rest of Us. And then again, quick, quick, uh, quick ad and PSA break. <laughs> And then afterwards, we have Nico's interview with Aaron Hawks Emuri. And, um, and that should be a good variety of content for you. Okay, so I'm gonna leave you with Dion's review now. I will not pop back in after the ad MPSA. Just gonna leave it to Phoebe. And then I will talk to you after Phoebe's interview. Enjoy! Hey, what's up, you cats and kittens? This is Dion here, and today I will be reviewing the documentary film Shelter, uh, a film by Ron Chapman. The film is opening for the Toronto Jewish Film Festival, which will begin on June 3rd, and tickets are available starting today on May 12th. The film is about a group of Jewish Holocaust survivors who came to Toronto and actually were really crucial in the urban planning and building of Toronto as a modern city. And it basically uh, celebrates the, the Jewish immigration story and how they contributed to the landscape of Toronto today. And uh, the film had like a combination of archival footage, uh, first-hand interviews, and also dramatic historical reenactments. Uh, the subject of the film itself is very intriguing. Like I never knew 
about uh you know i don't know much about the urban landscaping of toronto and it was uh really cool to hear that it was actually a group like different groups of jewish holocaust survivors from europe uh coming over here in the early 1900s and just building toronto from the ground up in the 50s and for the first half of the movie i would say it was really cool to hear like firsthand stories from these people and from their family members and i think it's really important to you know keep the narrative alive and they also had like archival photographs but they it was they animated it so it looked three dimensional it, it, like the characters moved a little bit in the photographs in like this somewhat natural way and that was cool to see and um but I personally didn't really enjoy the historical reenactments it felt a little bit kitschy for me and um it's not my personal vibe like I don't think they really contributed to the atmosphere of the film and eventually like the documentary felt a little bit formulaic it was just archival photograph interview voiceover interview over more archival photographs historical reenactment and at parts of the movie like I could tell they also like reused clips and while there's nothing wrong with that I feel like um, some of the choices that were made in this movie didn't contribute to the intrigue of the subject matter if that makes any sense uh, as an audience I didn't feel very invested in the story it was an interesting topic but the storytelling wasn't done in a way to make it interesting I feel and which is a shame because I think it was such a great story idea and I felt like there was more potential to the documentary and I wish there was more of a narrative to to everything because you had uh, these different groups of families and it just switches between between subjects between interviewees so fast that I don't really understand like who they are referring to and I know they they show the names on the screen but I just uh, yeah I definitely was kind of lost sometimes like I was like so who did this or that unfortunately I think this documentary had a great subject matter and it had great um story potential but it didn't pull through eventually because the film itself didn't offer anything creative to the story it was almost like watching a well-written historical textbook which if you read into it it's interesting but it it doesn't make for good film if you know what i mean i I'm obviously very grateful. I thank the interviewees and the director, Ron Chapman, for telling these stories of these Jewish families who built Toronto, basically, in the 1950s. But the documentary didn't invest me in the story, even though the subject matter of the documentary did. Old or New Testament? 
is pilot remember pilot from the new testament what does pilot he fiddled well yeah no well just a minute let me ask the question then you can give me the answer okay did pilot want jesus to be crucified yeah, uh uh pontus pilot washed his hands of it so did he want him to be crucified yeah no 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 well, find a good church. It'll help you. Feeling lost in the lonely, meaningless cyberweb? Looking to connect with other users? Then plug in to a CITR collective. Meet users who are compatible with your interests and passions. CITR's mainframe offers nine unique collectives. News, arts, accessibility, sports, persons of color, indigenous, gender empowerment, LGBTQ2SIA+, and music affairs. CITR collectives are where you can make great radio, great friends, and avoid the abject loneliness of life in the cyber void. This is Phoebe bringing you another pre-recorded Zoom interview. It is for something that I'm really excited about to share. It's a documentary called Food for the Rest of Us. I absolutely loved watching this. Um, I've gone and told all my friends about it because I think it's super cool. It's to summarize about uh, an intimate look into uh, the human relationship to food and how local communities and leaders are using farming and food as a means of activism as well as sustenance and community building. And yeah, so I had the absolute pleasure to talk to some of the people behind this documentary. I did not record a smooth segue at the time, so to get the ball rolling, I asked them both to introduce themselves and say a little bit about their role and how they contributed. So. Yeah. Uh, so I'm Caroline Cox and I'm the director and co-producer and I co-own Copper Quartz Media with Tiffany, which is the production company. And my name is Tiffany Eilich. I am an Inuit filmmaker from Yellowknife Northwest Territories and my family comes from Pogloktok Nunavut. And uh, I am a co-producer and co-writer and uh, the other half of Copper Quartz. I watched the documentary last night. Oh, yeah, it was right. really, I, I was amazed. I loved it. I'm a, I'm a geography major, but um, with a sort of, I don't know, flirtation and sustainable farming, I guess. So it was, it was oh, yeah. really incredible. Have you guys worked together before? What drew you together for this project? Yeah, so we first started working together about five years ago on a project in the Northwest Territories called Wild Kitchen. And uh, it was kind of my first bigger project as a filmmaker. And I found Tiffany, like I didn't know her until that project and she came on as the host. And so over a couple of years, we did seven episodes of that Wild Kitchen show. And so with the popularity of that show and just knowing that we worked well together, that was when we formed Copper Quartz Media. This new film, Food for the Rest of Us, really came out of that project and it's our first feature film as a production company. We kind of like uh, 
sort of meeting all these folks from around the world and around North America who are mm -hmm. using farming and food harvesting. Um, and like in particular, Eric Person, who's in the film, was someone we found on Instagram. And yeah. what like his message of using food to empower yourself. And uh, one of his quotes is that sticking your hands in the soil is one of the most pro-Black things you can do. Um, we just had never seen anyone frame it like that before. And so that really gave the inertia of like, okay, let's make a documentary about this subject of farming as activism. Yeah, he was a very powerful speaker in, in the documentary. On, on that point, uh, farming as activism, I guess it's quite a big question to just throw at you at 11 a.m. on a Saturday, but do you, do you think uh, you could speak to what that means to you? Because in the documentary, uh, uh, that topic comes up and people have different interpretations and have different um, readings of why they're farming or their local growing or just their connection with the land is activism for them. And I was wondering, do you have your own personal takes on it? Yeah, I think that um, one of the really cool things about the film is looking how looking at how different communities are coming up with very specific solutions for their regions and for their communities and for, um, you know, what works for them. And in, in Hawaii, food sovereignty is going to look like a different um, manifestation uh, than it is in the high Arctic. And um, I think something that is really important when we're we're looking at this activism role that food and farming can play is that it's not a one-size-fits-all solution and that it's so important to be supporting um, in a lot of cases uh, these indigenous-led um, local hyper-local hyper-community focused um, solutions that people who actually live in those communities are coming up with and are um, having control over and to just like kind of swoop in and say, here, here's this problem, here's, here's how we fix the solution because this happens to work in somewhere down south isn't going to work in the north. And so um, what we were really excited to show is that uh, the solutions to um, food insecurity and trying to make, trying to support communities being um, more food sovereign um, in, in how they, you know, look after and feed their communities is in the hands of those communities and that the best thing we can be doing is supporting those initiatives that are um, organically, farming pun intended, that are organically um, kind of growing um, from within instead of being superimposed um, from the outside. And uh, that's something for sure personally um, that I've really witnessed a lot being from the North and seeing that like some of these some of these things just don't work. And so what was the missing key ingredient is that um, I think what, what helps these, these, prog these programs um, be successful is that it's um, in complement, it's complementing um, indigenous practice that's already happening. So there are hunters and trappers um, and harvesters already working um, through a cultural lens and that this is, um, yeah. you know, these programs are, are complementing those things and also helping to support the revival of traditional practice at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So many really big topics come up in this documentary. Yeah, um, and it's something that's come yeah. up quite a bit too is this idea of, you know, COVID and how it really put yeah. a microscope on some of the flaws in our um, supply chain and just access to food. And then also like disparity of wealth has really become like <laughs> the gap between the wealthy and the poor is just growing and growing all the time. Oh yeah. 
So I think one thing we hope with this film is that people can really start to think about a paradigm shift as we move into this post-COVID world. Mm -hmm. And like, if there's ever a time to rebuild something that's broken, it's after a big disruptive event, something like a, a pandemic, you know? So uh, yeah, I think yeah. it's a really great time for people to start making just little changes locally that can really ripple into big societal changes. Absolutely, how we recover after such a big disruption will make a big difference. Is there yeah. anything else that you had in mind specifically when thinking about what you hope your audience takes away from this? Because when I finished it, I, was, I felt very inspired. Um, and I was just wondering if that you had a particular goal takeaway in mind. I think for sure we would, we love that people would be inspired and uh, just even if they want to start making those small steps to start being more closely connected to their, their food system, whether it's supporting local farmers or even planting seeds in their own backyard or on their patio, you know, um, and also we really wanted to make the film accessible to like a younger audience and mm. a more mainstream audience. I know sometimes documentaries kind of sway into the academic or maybe an older age demographic, but it was really important for us to include younger voices and diverse voices. And so we hope that those same folks are the people who decide to come and watch the film. Totally. And, and we're really hoping too that um, when, when people watch the film that um, that you can start to see these very small incremental um, things that we can all do and that the the often who's left out of these conversations of land accessibility and food accessibility are the most marginalized and the most um, you know the most vulnerable and who should be our like top priority when looking at who has access to food and land use and that um, by platforming and highlighting the amazing work that these people are doing, despite these incredible systemic and systematic barriers that they face, that that can be an encouraging, um, you know, factor to other people who are feeling super isolated in the work that they're doing in their own communities. Yeah, absolutely. In the documentary, you focus in on uh, some key places. How did you come to find those places? We really just started doing research and then we found Mao Organic Farm um, in Hawaii, which has this amazing program where they take uh, youth from a local, predominantly indigenous, um, a lot of social issues and also a real lack of access to land because the American military has occupied the land. They're actually in their 18th year of operation, so they've come a long way to reclaim the land and it's taken them a long time to get the access to the land that they even have right now. But what's mm. great about that program is that the kids who are working there, the youth, after two years, they get their post-secondary paid for. So it's also like a feeder program into post-secondary while rooting them in these really like kind of grounded spiritual indigenous teachings that are all land-based. So it's really having a positive impact on the whole community. Um, yeah, and then we just... Well, Takteyaktek, we're, we're from the Northwest Territories, and so we already knew some of the folks in that region, and we knew of the greenhouses that were be being built along the Arctic coast to help people adapt. The, yeah. I mean, Tiffany, you might be able to speak to it better than I can, but just the exorbitant cost of food in the high Arctic. Um, so yeah, I don't know yeah. if you want to. For sure, like the, um, the, the cost of living you know, coupled in with the the cost of of groceries in the in the high Arctic are so exorbitant, and 
you know, the cost of shipping and uh, never mind how expensive it is to get food up there. But by the time it does get up there, it's, it's closer to compost than, <laughs> than anything, you know, yeah. that was quote unquote fresh when it left <laughs> Mexico three weeks ago. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's a kind of a, um, uh, a conundrum for sure that they like, where do we, where do we get access to, to, um, to healthy food? And I think in, in these, um, in several Northern communities, there's like, I was mentioning this beautiful blend of, um, of putting traditional land use, hunting and harvesting practices in with, um, you know, programs that are helping, helping uh, Inuit led, Inuit run um, growing operations to thrive and to not be this sort of superimposed thing um, in, in the community. And, you know, to see the lush abundance of the Inuvik greenhouse is is pretty incredible when you see that they've converted this entire um, uh, a hockey rink into like a, quite a large um, operation and that they're producing, you know, tons and tons of food that uh, is like staying in the community and they're training um, people, local people in the management, and then also taking that knowledge and, and kind of proliferating it out into the smaller communities as well. So that was seemed like a really cool project to, to highlight. Um, yeah, it must be incredible to see in person. Caroline got to fly the drone inside the, <laughs> the, oh my gosh. the greenhouse to get some yeah. of that amazing bird's eye view footage of uh, Arctic, Arctic lush. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and another thing that's happening in the Arctic too right now is that impacts of climate change are happening much faster and it's much yeah. more dramatic. And then also because people are, because the cost of food is so high, people really rely on hunting and fishing to sustain themselves. And so that is all shifting and changing, like literally under their feet. Like the town of Tuktoyaktuk is falling into the ocean because the permafrost is melting and the shoreline is giving way. Um, yeah. But it's impacting like the, the the fish migration routes because of the warmer ocean temperatures and the yeah. There was one point where they said that that the fish had just come two weeks earlier because mm -hmm. of climate change. Like that was common sense. And yeah, yeah, and it's it's like very very rapid up there. So it's kind of that dual story of like this uh, resourcefulness of of adapting and starting to grow gardens. Um, which wasn't traditionally done in the high Arctic, but then also mm. really having to adapt to the, the changes in the natural, you know, food sources, the, the, the hunting and the foraging. Yeah. How can people uh, watch this film that you've created together? Well, right now at this exact moment in time, it's available across Canada through DOXA. So the DOXA uh, Documentary Film Festival is happening from May 6th to 16th. And so, yeah, they can go on the, the DOXA website and they could buy a pass to our film. They could buy a pass to the whole festival. <laughs> awesome. um, and actually, yeah, and right now that is the only screening we have booked. So it's kind of like, wow, it's great now it's a great time to go see the film. <laughs> okay, so when I go tell all my friends to go watch this awesome documentary, I'll tell them to get in quick then. I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll head them to the DOXA website. So I'll wrap our conversation up here um, and say thank you so much for chatting with me. Um, it's an, truly on my part an honor uh, to be able to watch this incredible thing and then the next day talk to the people who made it. That's incredible. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> congratulations to the both of you. 
for your I don't know completing and and yeah. this project with a high standard of quality it's it's a beautiful piece um, of art and activism in my opinion thanks so much yeah. for having us Phoebe yeah absolutely thanks, Phoebe. and also I'm just like so happy that you love the film and if like, oh no I really did yeah yeah that's great <laughs> yeah we, we really want to like uh get out into the masses a little more and um, for sure yeah, yeah. well word of mouth okay. works great for that so thank you very much <laughs> so to wrap that all up as I'm sure you heard I'm a big fan of this documentary um, and I would absolutely recommend that you check it out and you can do so by going to the Doxa Festival website which is doxafestival.ca and you can find Food for the Rest of Us by searching in their programs. Uh, that's all from me. Bye. Hello, hello, I am back. Uh, you are listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM, and this is Saraunju, the host, talking. Hello. I hope you've enjoyed the review that Dion did and the interview that Phoebe had. And now we're gonna go into a quick Add in PSA break, and afterwards we're gonna be back with another interview. This time, this interview is by Nico, and his interview is with Aaron Hawkins. Yes, that was a wordy way of me saying we have an interview coming up. I apologize. Okay, um, before I go, I would like to mention that again that um, our shows are bi-weekly right now, so we're not having a show next Wednesday, uh, but instead the week uh, after that, so May 26th. So follow us on our social media in the meantime to keep posted. Also, I've started posting on Fridays specifically about things that you might have missed, interviews, reviews. Um, mostly I'm posting about currently the music interviews we had the, because they're more timeless I would say rather than being tied to a specific event but I will be posting more so we are Art Support CITR on Instagram CITR underscore Art Support on Twitter and Art Support on CITR 101.9 FM on Facebook yes amazing I'm always down to chat. We do giveaways on our Instagram and Twitter, so keep an eye out, fam. Follow us. Okay, now that the the shameless promo is out of the way, I'll I'll let you I'll let you enjoy the interview after this very quick Adam PSA break, though. Enjoy. FM Vancouver Reloaded, playing your favorite tunes and mouth-humping your ear holes full of voice talk. Yeah, we do that. Open Media International is a non-profit, non-partisan organization working towards informed, citizen-driven internet policy. Open Media believes in keeping the internet uncensored, open, innovative, secure, and providing universal access to fast and affordable networks. If you would like Open Media to keep campaigning for citizens and internet policy, you can donate to them at openmedia.org or openmedia.ca. You can also find them on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Google+.
My name is Nico Martin Machino, and today I have a really interesting interview for you guys. It's going to be fairly educative, at least I hope so, and it's going to be on the topic of schizophrenia from one who has schizophrenia but also offers support in a clinical sense to those who also have schizophrenia. And uh, it's going to be revolved around the author's book, When Neurons Tell Stories, A Layman's Guide to the Neuroscience of Mental Illness and Health by Aaron Hawks Amiru. And I have the pleasure, pleasure of having Aaron on the show today. Now, before I introduce Aaron, I'm just going to quickly read a little synopsis from the press release distribution site where uh, Aaron's book has had her official press release. In Aaron's new book, When Neurons Tell Stories, A Layman's Guide to the Neuroscience of Mental Illness and Health, she brings neuroscience to life by postulating why neuroanatomy and neurochemicals matter when you are living with mental illness and addiction. Aaron, whose graduate education is in neuroscience, works as a peer supporter, support worker in Vancouver, Canada. The stories told in this book are those of her clients. Erin's empathy for her clients is built on her own diagnosis of schizophrenia. In this book, she opens for the layman the neuroscience that may underlie not only the symptoms of mental illness and addiction, but also mental health more broadly. Erin holds a master's in neuroscience. She was a recipient for multiple scholarships, including two natural sciences and engineering research council of Canada awards. In 2002, Aaron was diagnosed with schizophrenia and went to be hospitalized 14 times. Finally, antipsychotic medication helped her regain wellness, stability, and hope. Her memoir, When Quietness Came, a neuroscientist's personal journey with schizophrenia, was published in 2002. Aaron was awarded the prestigious Courageous to Come Back Award in 2019 from Vancouver Coastal Health. Since 2013, Aaron's work on the AC team has been highly valued by her clients and colleagues. Her previous book was highly regarded and has received 4.4 out of 5 stars on Amazon from 27 reviews. One 5-star review from the US called it fantastic and very scientific. A five-star review from Canada called it useful and inspiring, while a UK review said insightful into the mind of a schizophrenic. And now I have the pleasure in introducing the author of the book, Miss Erin Hawks Emiru. Did I say that right? Emiru? Emiru. Emiru. Thank you for coming, Erin. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. Thank you. Happy Mother's Day. Happy belated Mother's Day. Thank you. Did you have a good time on your special day? I did. My husband actually got stranded in traffic coming home from work. So I was with my daughter for a good long day. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. Again, congratulations. That's awesome. And also, uh, congratulations on your book. Now, this is very exciting. This is, uh, I feel like it's a, it's a field that there's always new novelties being mentioned, being documented. And uh, it's it's the brain. The brain is one thing that we barely know anything about. So it's so intriguing to always talk to those that uh, are very invested in the field and especially yourself that has a very unique position in this field, being one that uh, has schizophrenia, but then also works as a peer supporter. And uh, that's that's a very unique position. So is there any way just to start off, you could uh, just introduce us to how you came to be a peer supporter or interested in neuroscience? Uh, In undergrad, I was doing a degree in developmental psychology. And as my elective, I took intro to neuroscience, which my friends all laughed at me and said, your elective is neuroscience? I said, yeah, yeah. And I just, like when I found out how action potentials work at the level of biochemistry, Mm -hmm. 
Oh man, I was hooked. <laughs> loved it. Was a... And loved that it was a field that had so many questions. I I took intro and then intro number two, and I switched my major. I wanted to do a degree then in neuroscience, but I'm dating myself. There were very, very few undergraduate programs in neuroscience then, so I mm. took biology, chemistry, and then I still had the psychology, the developmental psychology, but then did a master's in neuroscience. And just from the introduction of your book, you go, you talk about your educational career and how you were about, or you just started your PhD, your doctor in neuroscience, and then something happened in your personal life that actually made you pull out of that. If you could just discuss a little bit about that. It was a little bit of a couple things, relate, probably related to schizophrenia, has been my memory deficits, mm. and that was a part of it. I just couldn't hold things in my head very long anymore. I was fine if I was in the middle of reading a paper or writing something academic when I had my sources right there beside me but doing it off the top of my head I couldn't and so I was looking ahead to the comprehensive exam uh, which is oral without notes and I did I was really sure I couldn't do it I decided to stop and then the next day I got a letter in the mail saying I had won a Michael Smith award for my proposed research which was too bad. I really wish I could have done the experiments that I had outlined I had I had outlined to my committee about five years worth of experiments looking at schizophrenia and rats and learning and how that can actually change levels of different neurochemicals in the brain. That's just amazing to hear your story and just everything that you went through despite you not being able to go through with the experiment to be here and now on the show with me speaking about you being a peer while having schizophrenia but showing up for people that has the same condition you know that's something that I really find admirable. Now that we've got that little introduction out of the way, we can go into your book a little bit right now. So again, I'm right now with Aaron Hawks Amiru, the author of When Neuron Tells Stories, A Layman's Guide to Neuroscience of Mental Illness and Health. What really inspired you for this book? Because you also did write a, a book in 2012. If you could talk a little bit about that first book. The first book was a memoir of my experience with schizophrenia and its treatment. So it it is mostly over maybe eight or 10 years when I was in the worst of it. They hadn't found a medication or medication combination that really worked for me. And that and other factors led me to be hospitalized 14 times. When I first started writing it, I told someone I was writing a memoir and I was in my early 30s and they're like, what? How could you have enough life experience to write a memoir? And I said, well... <laughs> Um, so it really chronicles my years, the, the years when I was in a lot of psychosis. Yeah, imagine that uh, was a difficult time. But through this memoir of yours, you also mentioned in your book that a, an opportunity presented itself, wow, an unprecedented opportunity. What was that opportunity? I was at a BC Schizophrenia Society event, and a actually a police officer with VPD asked to be introduced to me because he was part of these new act teams and he came over to me and said you know I read your book I've heard about you at the time I was I was doing some public speaking by then and he said he would really encourage me to apply for this job and that he really thought I'd be well suited to it even though I didn't have relevant experience or education other than writing my book. Um, but I applied, I went to the interview, the interview went great, it was the best job interview I've ever had. Um, came home and then I think the next day they offered me the job and I didn't really know what 
tech teams did. I didn't really know what peer support workers did, but my colleagues really, I, we would go in twos for the first while when, when I was there and I kind of learned from them different ways of supporting people. And then it just kind of like grew into, I would do my own, my own thing and see certain clients every week. Mm. Um, and I just got really interested in their lives and really wanting to help however that looked like, whether it was sitting down and talking with them over coffee or helping them go get their blood work done or go shopping with some money they've saved. Yeah, just such a varied job, but a lot, a lot of talking. Or for my part, hopefully a lot of listening. Oh yeah, that sounds like quite a, a fruitful job, you know, and just such a one of those relationships that you might acquire that are lifelong in in, in retrospect, you know, because uh, I just feel like it'd just be so personal, you know, and how could you not like those jobs that are so personal, and especially like we mentioned with your own situation with uh knowing what it's like to have schizophrenia i'm sure that your clientele are so receptive to that and and that's so you know so encouraging for them if you could just talk a little bit about that because i know that's kind of a way that you segued into your book the book that we're talking about the when when neurons tell stories because this is a book about your experience with your peers is it not yeah, yeah. It, the sort of the backbone of the book is their stories, and that's what started me on this idea. I, I was itching to write something else. I had just finished. Um, I had done online a certificate in mental health and addictions through Selkirk, and after I had electronically submitted my last term paper, I'm like, I don't want to stop writing. And I'm like, well, I don't want to write about completely myself again. I've done that with the memoir, but then I thought, well, what about my clients? And I began to think of all their all their stories that they had, and then I I just naturally brought in the neuroscience, and it's not really saying what's going what's going on in so and so's brain. It's like this person is going through this experience. I wonder if this might be going on in their brain. That might be going mm. on in their brain. So it's not hard and fast facts. It's more hypotheses and musing. Mm. And then, of course, with a lot of reference to academic papers of course, for, for the content. Of course. And uh, I guess on that note, do you have any theories on why and how 1% of people develop schizophrenia? Because I know that's one thing that you did mention in, uh, I think, the second chapter, that, uh, you know, the committee is still out or the jury is still out on that. And I think I know that's a million-dollar question, of course. But mm-hmm. do you have any theories for yourself of uh, why people that one percent do have schizophrenia, why and how? It's a it's a loaded question for sure. I mean, neuroscience is a field where you, if you want to go into a field where you hear I don't know a lot, then you go into neuroscience. So we just don't know so much. It's uh, <laughs> and I just I mean I have a book full of experiences, but they're not really why does this person have schizophrenia? I tried to I did touch on t- sort of typical co- um, topics like addictions, paranoia, hallucinations, mm-hmm. but I also wanted to see my clients, not just as people with schizophrenia, a couple others had different diagnoses, but most of them were diagnosis of schizophrenia or schizoaffective. And um, so I wanted to tr- talk about spirituality, which you don't normally do on in psychiatric outreach, but mm-hmm. my clients seem to want to talk about it. When I go see them in the morning, I, I buy them a cup of coffee. They say, we go out to the park so I can have a cigarette with my coffee. Yeah. I was like, there must be neuroscience in that too. The something special about that combination. So it's not a, it's not a textbook. No, yes, it's very an- anecdotal, 
and uh, very personal as well, which is something that I think is a huge strength in your narrative because it does give that that uniqueness to your position, which uh, which I think is something to be to definitely mention more than once. I also um, I would like to talk about the, just the general peer support. You know, you were mentioning that you wanted to give a different take on this book. You know, maybe not talk about the tradi- traditional things that are spoken of when on the topic of schizophrenia. And you kind of wanted to go from, you know, maybe talk a little bit more of trust rather than paranoia. And that experience, you know, of like building that relationship with the clientele. Yeah, peer support has the really unique position of being able to say, I know. Mm. So, for example, I remember going to see one of my clients in the hospital for he was uh, hospitalized for psychiatric reasons and he had been put in one of the so-called quiet rooms and refused to talk to everybody. So I went cautiously in and I, I said, you know what? I have been in this exact same quiet room. I've slept on that bed. I've looked at these walls and I've had, I've dealt with these, the professionals, the nurses and doctors, etc." And he looks up at me. He's like, okay, I'll talk to you, but no one else. And just that I know was so powerful. And it, it really surprised me that because so many people on the ACT team are living in a way that is very different from my very privileged upbringing and current living uh, status. And so I can't, I can't say I know to everything, but they seem to appreciate that it, so the mental health side of it. That's very profound and very, very personal. Again, I think that's, uh, for me, I always think my own theory in life is that empathy is the one tool that we can use to really solve all these cultural and social problems and issues that we have. And, you know, when it comes to stigmas with mental health and all that stuff, it's really until you have someone in the family that suffers from something like that, where you start to understand that, hey, no, you know, and just like you said, I know, you know, I get it. But it also gives you that initiative to be there beside them and actually, you know, meet them halfway. And uh, yeah. I'm really glad that you brought that to the forefront. Very and it didn't, it didn't have to be the exact same experience to be able to relate. I could relate to them. Mm-hmm. One of my most favorite moments at ACT was when I was helping a man apply to go for treatment for drug use. Okay. And so he was having me help him write down all the things in the long application. So we had just finished an entire page of, have you done this drug? When? How much? What quantity? What route? All that. Just a whole page of it. Just so mentally exhausting. And then the next question was, have you ever had an eating disorder? And he said, no. And I wrote that down. And then I sort of paused and I looked at him. I said, you know what? That's what I went through. Mm. Um, And I said, I know the feelings of shame and secrecy and isolation. I know that it takes time, money, attention. Uh, I know that it breaks relationships. And I know that you do it even though at the mo- you can be hating what you're doing, but you still do it. And he looked at me, he said, hey, you get my addiction. I said, yeah, I, I do. And then just this moment of no judgment between us. So even though I had gone through nothing like what he had gone through, I could still understand the, the emotions underneath it. The, the mask had been taken off and yeah. you almost could see the person for who they are they could allow you to to see who you are you know and um I, of, I often talk about my friends with this too on a i like to say you know for us humans sometimes it's easier to touch than to be touched in the mm-hmm. sense you know it's easier just to maybe be the protagonist and just you know just maybe control things through your through your language or whatever but it's hard to let be receptive and really mm-hmm. let people into you 
and, uh, and then that goes on so many levels and what it seems that you just expressed is you know you guys actually were able to touch each other you know in, in this in this very very real serene way you know where you can recognize each other almost like in an ex existentialist way where you see each other for who you are for who they are and uh, that's that's just so powerful that's a, that's a virtue I really do think that's a virtue because it's so hard just for any of us to connect with anyone else on a, on a deeper level so that's something very strong. Yeah. And it was seeing his spark, his inner core, that years of addiction and homelessness or substandard housing and poverty and physical limitations and everything was just piled on top of his shining bright center. Mm. And he has told me that, especially me and a colleague as well, like he felt how much we believed in him. And that's, that's priceless to hold that for someone when they can't really hold on to it themselves and just sort of offer it back. But now, since we are in, in our last minute, is there any final remarks that you would like to say to our listeners? To anyone maybe that is suffering with mental health or wants to get into the field? Suffering from mental health, say try and see about for sport. Whether you receive it or give it or both, it's a unique opportunity on either side. Great. Well, thank you so much, Aaron. I really appreciate you coming here today and being so honest with us. And again, congratulations for uh, having your daughter recently. Was she uh, just recently born? Uh, she's 14 months. 14 months. Okay. Well, 14 months. Congratulations. And uh, thank you again for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much. No problem. This was uh, Aaron Hawks Emiru, the author of When Neurons Tell Stories, A Layman's Guide to the Neuroscience of Mental Illness and Health. And this was Nico conducting the interview. Back to you, Sarah. Hello! Welcome back for the second time. Hi! <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed that interview that Nico did with Aaron Hawks Emory. And, and, and that's, that's it, folks. That brings us to the end of the show. I hope you've enjoyed the show so far all of it. I don't know why I said so far because this is literally the end. Um, but anyways, so uh, what's on the agenda for the upcoming show? Let me tell you, we have a packed show coming for you. Not next week, but the week after that. So we're gonna, of course, have some shout outs. And then we have an interview with Crystal Shawanda by Eva. We have an interview for His Name is Ray by Dion. Dion is also going to be reviewing His Name is Ray. We have an interview for Yukon Harvest by Phoebe. We have a review uh, by Lua and yeah, so much stuff. So also, oh my God, Lua is back. Isn't this amazing? Well, not on this episode, but on the upcoming one. This is like a end of the episode, like a TV show end of the episode trailer where a older character who was either killed off or like taken to another city because the actor was leaving, stuff like that, you know, um, the uh, the the character was killed off and then um at the end of the episode the 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 actor comes back not the actor character comes back and and you're like oh my god i have to watch the next episode how how is this character back this is what's happening with lua right now <laughs> 
because Lua was working um, two jobs and being a full-time student, she wasn't able to contribute, unfortunately, during the year. But now that it's summer and she doesn't have classes uh, yet and that she's not working right now as much, so she's able to contribute. And so if you have been listening for a while and if you know Lua, then this is exciting for you. Keep an eye out or keep your ear up I don't know anyways <laughs> I'm so sorry um on May 26th for Lou's review as I said we have interviews and more reviews coming up so please tune in on May 26th at 5 p.m um you might be asking what's gonna happen if we tune in next week on Wednesday at 5 p.m well you're gonna hear an older episode. We're not going away. You're you can't get rid of us. <laughs> okay, so I think I'll leave you to it. But before I go, make sure you're following us on Spotify and or Apple Podcasts if you have it. And you can leave us a cheeky little review on Apple Podcasts if you like. Why was I not able to pronounce Apple Podcasts? Anyways. Anyways. I hope I hope to see you on the next one. Enjoy your day, enjoy the sun and have a lovely one. Bye.